Hello, I'm very excited to welcome you to the very first ever episode of Pan Am. This is a podcast that will explore some of the unusual, forgotten or unlikely stories about Paris and the Parisians who live there. Now, you might be wondering why I called a podcast which is about the secret stories of Paris, Pan Am. I do have my own personal reasons for why I particularly like this word, but a straightforward response would be that Pan Am is a slightly old-fashioned slang word for Paris. It replaced other P-words like Pompluche, Pantin or Pantruche, and by the First World War was the new word in vogue, as can be confirmed by numerous references and songs which all refer to Paris as Pan Am. However, the origins of this ambiguous word are complex and fascinating and can be linked with that most Parisian of monuments, that eponymous tower that looms tall over Paris, ubiquitous in any Google image search and emblazoned on nearly every souvenir of the city, a must-see for tourists and inescapable for everyone else. I'm talking about the Eiffel Tower, of course, and where better to start a podcast about Paris than there. When you get out of the metro at Trocadero, the view of the Eiffel Tower is really breathtaking. Thanks to the strict rules that forbid high-rises in Paris, it feels a little bit like going back in time, as the impact of the tower remains unchanged from that of 1889. Although the tower was then the world's tallest structure at 1,000 foot, and would remain so for four decades until the Chrysler Building in New York surpassed it, and then just two years later the Empire State Building. Today, in any other city such as New York or London, which are full of big buildings and skyscrapers, the Eiffel Tower wouldn't have the same impact. It would be lost. But here in Paris, it still feels enormous. But when Gustav Eiffel first suggested building in the middle of beautiful Paris for the occasion of the 1889 World's Fair to celebrate the centenary of the French Revolution, a giant iron tower, well, let's just say Paris and the Parisians were less than pleased. They wanted little to do with, in what many people considered, a hideous and thankfully temporary blot on the Parisian landscape. However, it proved to be a huge success and soon became synonymous with Paris, a symbol of modernity and French ingenuity, and definitely not temporary. It made Eiffel's fortune and his reputation. He became famous the world over. But just four years later, things would radically change for him. His reputation would be forever tarnished and his career more or less over. In this episode, we'll discover how Paris and the Eiffel Tower may have made the fortune and reputation of Gustav Eiffel, and how Pan Am destroyed it. On the 12th of June, 1886, Eiffel and his lesser-known partner, Sales, won the competition to build the fair's centrepiece, beating off opponents, some of which had put forward some rather dubious suggestions, such as a giant sprinkler, a huge brick tower or a gigantic guillotine, which, even after a hundred years, the committee decided was still too soon to contemplate. But no sooner had Eiffel won than problems arose. Firstly, financial. He had estimated that the total cost of the tower would be around five million francs, or a million dollars. Originally, the state had planned to cover the costs, but they changed their minds, deciding that they could only afford to cover one-third, and that Eiffel needed to find the rest himself. This would mean that he ultimately invested a lot of his own money in the project. Next, the location became a problem. 
The Eiffel Tower was originally meant to be a temporary structure and dismantled after 20 years. They planned to build it on the Champ de Mars, but when the military academy got wind of this, they were less than pleased and petitioned to have it moved, because they discovered they would lose their training ground not just for the duration of the fair, but for the 20 years following it. And so the location was changed to its present place, just along the banks of the River Seine. But this gave Eiffel yet another headache. The legs would require a much more complicated compressed air construction technique to evenly spread the weight on this ground due to it being much more waterlogged and marshy than that of the Champ de Mars. But it didn't stop there. Petitions were signed by artists, writers and architects, including Garnier, who had only recently completed his opera which is hardly surprising he was against the Eiffel Tower when you compare his ornate style to that of the pared-down modernity of Eiffel's Tower. Not only this, but neighbouring people were terrified that this monstrosity would collapse. They would sure it would never be able to resist the wind. Some people even suggested it would turn into a giant magnet and damage everything around it. So not only would this eyesore ruin house prices, but worse, it would probably collapse and kill them in their beds while they slept. A number of people brought lawsuits against Eiffel, costing him time and money. In an attempt to stop the building, some people even resorted to personal attacks on Eiffel's character, implying that he was Jewish in an attempt to stir up anti-Semitic feelings and prevent the tower from ever being built. He ignored all of this, believing that the tower would have its own beauty and that the people of Paris would come around to his point of view staking his reputation and personal fortune on the building of this tower. But nothing could go ahead until the government signed off on the contract. However, they were nervous and divided in opinion about it. And so it was not until January 1887, nearly seven months after initially being chosen, that they finally gave Eiffel the go-ahead. The contract, and this is important for later, stipulated that Eiffel was only to use French labour, materials and technology. As the centrepiece of the World's Fair, it was to showcase French skills and ingenuity. At the end of the first year, the city of Paris would become its owner, but Eiffel would retain all income, save 10% earmarked for the city's poor. Not a bad deal, if he could pull it off. Three weeks later, on the 28th of January, on a particularly freezing winter day, Eiffel and his team began work. They would not stop working, come wind, rain, snow or shine, for the next two years in order to get the tower ready in time. And so just over two years, or rather two years, four months and one week to be precise, on May the 15th at 11.50am, 1889, the 1,000 foot, three or 300 metre tower was opened at last. It was a huge hit and an instant success, attracting around 12,000 visitors a day. And many had originally been put off by this huge iron monstrosity, did see the beauty that Eiffel had promised and changed their minds. Well, nearly everyone. Guy de Montpassin remained decidedly unimpressed and very vocal about it. Not one to mince his words, he wrote in his travel memoir, I left Paris and even France because the Eiffel Tower just annoyed me too much. Not only do you see it from everywhere, you found it everywhere, made out of every known material, displayed in all the shop windows, an unavoidable and horrible nightmare. So just like today, souvenirs were very popular from the beginning. 
Now let's take a moment, however, to consider this horrible nightmare and the feat of engineering that, in Guy's words, created this giant and disgraceful skeleton. Until then, the highest point in Paris had been the Dome of Les Invalides at 344 feet, and the world's tallest structure was found in the USA, the 555-foot-tall Washington Monument, which had been completed a few years earlier, in 1884. The Eiffel Tower at a thousand foot was nearly double that, but as with all pioneering works, there was no precedent from which Eiffel could draw. Nonetheless, he was a hard-working, diligent, rigorous, capable and ambitious man. He staked everything on finishing the tower in time. If he had failed or the tower collapsed, he would have lost it all. Accuracy was paramount. Every rivet hole, and there were 2.5 million, had to be drawn in the precise spot. Calculations had to be accurate to one-tenth of a millimetre, or this giant puzzle would not have fitted together. Each piece of the tower, and there were 18,000, were drawn separately. The most crucial element had to be the first floor. The four pillars that make up the legs had to be joined together to create a perfectly even, flat first platform. It was essential that it be com completely level. If even a few inches askew, it would undermine the whole structure and jeopardise the rest. But thanks to Eiffel's clever hydraulic system, whereby he was able to make minute adjustments to the height of the legs, he was able to ensure that the first floor was perfectly level, which allowed the work to continue. So despite harsh weather, workmen's strikes and the continued mockery of some, Eiffel completed his magnus opus just in time. Or almost. An important piece was still not in place. Eiffel may have wowed the public and won over the majority of people, but now he needed to make some of his money back after all of his investments. And how could he do this? Well, in the same way they do today. Get people to visit. But no one wants to climb hundreds of stairs. He needed lifts. Here too he had faced problems. Remember the contract stipulated that they needed to use French labour and technology? Here Eiffel found himself in rather a pickle. Lifts were essential, but in the same way that there had never been a tower like this before, well, there'd never been a lift like it either. He needed to ensure safety and compatibility. Eiffel could not bring himself to take the easy route out and have lifts which ascended the centre of the tower, as he felt this would undermine the simplicity and the beauty of his structure. Rather, he wanted lifts to rise within the curved legs of the tower to the second floor and then a second elevator to the top. Now, if the Americans' noses were somewhat put out of joint by the fact that the French had built a tower double the size of their own, surpassing them as the proud owner of the world's largest structure, then they may take solace in the little-known fact that the only company brave enough, or perhaps foolhardy enough, to take on the project was the American-based Otis Company, who had foreseen the need for lifts from the very beginning, and had been planning since day one. Eiffel was obliged to waver the French-only stipulation and had to accept the Otis Company's bid as no one else was forthcoming. They were, after all, famed the world over for their innovative elevators and sterling safety record. It was not a smooth partnership, but ultimately a successful one. The 1889 World's Fair was a great success for France and for Eiffel. Everyone was keen to visit his tower and see Paris from a completely new angle. He was celebrated and solicited by the whole of Paris and international society. But just a few years later, people would despise him 
and even sent him death threats. So what went wrong? What happened to so radically change his fortunes? Gustav Eiffel had been unlucky enough to become involved in the doomed and corrupt Panama Canal Company. In 1880, they'd started working on building a sea-level canal which would link the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean via Panama. They had, however, drastically underestimated the difficulty of the project, not taking into account the terrain or climate. By 1887, they'd lost over $280 million and many of the lives of the men working for them to yellow fever and malaria. In desperation, they reached out to the man of the moment, famed engineer Gustav Eiffel who had originally opposed their plans, but seeing the trouble they were in, he agreed to help. Eiffel started working on a system of liquid locks, which he had realised necessary from the beginning. But it was too little, too late, and now the people of France wanted to know where almost $300 million of their money had gone. But with one promoter fled to England, another having committed suicide and one on the brink of senility, only Charles de Lesseps and Gustave Eiffel were left to be held accountable. An investigation was launched to find out exactly how this debacle could have happened and how the company had managed to continue hemorrhaging money on a doomed project while at the same time still encouraging people to invest. But considering that the Panama Canal Company had paid over $4.4 million in bribes to both the French press and various politicians, it's perhaps not surprising that the truth of the matter was never revealed. Needless to say, Investors, many of them everyday people who'd been sold a lie and lost their life savings, were furious. They needed someone to blame, and not many people felt pity for the wealthy Eiffel. His sentence was read out on the 9th of February, 1893, in the Palais de Justice. He was pronounced guilty of fraud and sentenced to two years in prison, as well as a fine of $4,000. Four months later, Gustave Eiffel arrived at the conciergerie to serve his sentence. This is the very same prison that had kept Marie Antoinette prisoner before her final journey to the guillotine almost a hundred years before. He was led to the cell, number 74, a plainly furnished room with only a bed, a table and a chair, and from his high-barred window he might hear Paris bustling by, but he was only able to see the River Seine. A strict routine was in place. He woke at 6.30 and lights were out by 10. But just one week later, on June 15th, he was released. The ruling had been overturned by a High Court judge. Apparently, the statute of limitations had been ignored. The guilty verdict was now void and he could no longer be prosecuted for this affair. Not only this, but it would later be proved that he had not supported the original project and had no part whatsoever in the corruption or bribes. As for the canal, in 1904 the USA would finish the project. They used more advanced excavation equipment and locks, as suggested by Eiffel. Despite being released and cleared of corruption charges, his reputation was nonetheless forever tainted, and he withdrew from his business and would not work on another major high-profile project again. Eiffel died in his home at the age of 91 on the 27th of December, whilst listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Adante. This was, without doubt, one of the greatest financial scandals of modern French history, and it was shortly thereafter that the word Panam, so close to that of Panama, came into use to denote Paris, leading people to believe that Panam is directly linked to the Panama scandal. 
Another theory, however, is that the sophisticated Parisians had taken to wearing Panama hats after seeing them sported by the returning labourers who'd been working on the construction of the canal. So the origins of Panam are rather obscure, and I'm not sure if anyone actually knows the real answer. It's either a terribly ruinous financial disaster, or a fashion statement. Maybe it's a bit of both, which does feel appropriate for Paris. Scandalous, but always fashionable. Dans une rue de Paname, so that is the story of how Paris made Eiffel and Panam broke him. This, however, is not the only reason that I personally chose Panam for the name of my podcast. It was also because it reminds me of when I first moved to Paris back in 2001. At that time, I could not really afford French lessons and found grammar completely baffling. I think I, I still find it completely baffling. So I decided instead to turn to music and books to teach me the language and the ways of my adopted country. My flatmate at the time introduced me to a Renault, a popular singer from the 1980s, who was adept at using a particular and now somewhat dated slang or argot popular in Paris. From him I learned such useful words as goddess, which means shoes, or futal, for trousers, or frang, for clothes. But it was in his song, Amoureuse de Paname, that I first heard this word. I asked my friends what it meant. They didn't know. I looked in my admittedly small dictionary. Nothing. Finally I asked my flatmate. Amber, he said. It means Paris, of course. Moi suis amoureux de Paname. Thank you so much for listening to this very first episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts and I'm always open to new ideas and stories. For more information, you can check out my website, panampodcast.com. And we're on all the usual social media places. For more information about the Eiffel Tower and the 1889 World's Fair, I can highly recommend the book Eiffel's Tower by Jill Jones. Panam was written and recorded by myself with music from Les Danse Nostalgiques from the Al. You can find links to her work in the show notes. That's it for now. Take care. Goodbye. Moi, je suis amoureux de Paname, du béton et du macadam.